I don't know, if you're going to talk to your boss and say something to your boss, I don't think that's a private conversation. Uh, theoretically, yes. I don't know. There's a line and you, it's, it's not objective. So it's a hard, hard thing to say. <laughs> How about that mic, though? This mic's a great mic. This mic I got a d- huge discount on, so don't make fun of this mic. And I love that's it, right. and you know that I love it, and that's why you're making fun of it. It's not just you who loves it, Chris. There's sort of a standardization of love in the audio community. Basically, you know, shorthand, like that microphone equals quality. But this isn't a 47. This is a 67. Well, yeah, nobody, no goofball with a home studio has a 47, <laughs> you know, like... Lots of goofballs with home studios have 67s and 87s. Wow, I'll tell you. <laughs> Man, first of all, you implied that you were my boss. <laughs> because we had a private conversation that you're now using against me. I guess you are the boss. I mean, Jim, would you say Rick is the boss of the podcast? Like Bruce? Like Bruce. <laughs> oh, you, oh, you mean like Bruce... <laughs> I got it. It took me a while, but I got it. His singing style, uh, yeah, I don't know. I never compared him to Springsteen much. We actually, in a private conversation that I had with Rick recently, we did talk about our singing styles being compared to Bruce Springsteen and John Cougar Mellencamp, but not aesthetically. Did Bruce used to smoke? You said smoke. Did he smoke? Yeah. Probably. I would... I don't know. Now he's like super fit though. So like he just maintains, like what do you think he does to get that voice without smoking? Westerberg used to scream, right? He used to, yeah. he fostered that rasp by screaming. Now he smoked too. Right. Um, but I think it's, but you scream. I mean, I scream. We, we all, all scream. scream. <laughs> Jim's kind of a silky smooth backup guy when it comes to <laughs> vocals. He'll do like a, a very warm and, enjoyable talking kind of vocal underneath or he will just do a sort of mid-range singing but it's always very pleasant it's only happened like maybe twice (laughs) i think well and like yeah one of the songs and i think i did sing on the very first time we recorded i recorded with i was dragged in you were like everybody was like come in here Mm. We all were doing back, we were doing, we did those covers. We recorded yeah. four covers and I, I have no idea. I can't remember what, but we all I've sang got, backups on a track on something. Yeah, I've got the master tape but downstairs. I could look. Four gags is what Steve dubbed them. <laughs> it's a little, little dismissive of us coming in and doing four cover songs. How fitting that Jim would break all the rules of the podcast on this particular episode because... I'll just say hello and welcome to the very last episode of Lost and Found and Rewound. I'm Chris Lost. I'm Found Jim. And I'm Rick Rewound. On our last episode, A Special Promise, Hereditary versus Exorcist 3. Can I, can I interrupt, Chris? I, I think you're sure, using this sure. word last incorrectly. So what you should say is, previous episode. A previous. And then also, I already remember you saying all this like maybe a year ago about our last episode. Use that word. I don't think you know what it means. <laughs> Look, I'll say I've been very melodramatic about the end of this podcast. I think there's been maybe four or five episodes that are allegedly the last. Time is just artificial, you know. It's just these are different streams. Last of this time stream. I don't know. It's like the last kiss tour. How many of those have there been? 
That's what I'm saying. <laughs> we are a lot like Kiss, except there's only three of us, and we don't put on copious amounts of makeup. <laughs> we we have one last special promise in the chamber. We didn't think we did, or I didn't think we did on our last episode. Not to jump the gun on the I apologize segment, because there will be an official apology coming here soon. But I will apologize for my performance in the last episode. I think it was dog shit. I'll just grade it real quickly right now. It was flat. I was drinking for two straight weeks over the holiday break, and I came into that episode. And, you know, maybe I'm just fooling myself. Maybe it's like, you know, how much or how much older segment where I think I look a lot younger than Dabney Coleman, but I don't. You know, maybe the truth of the matter is I don't. And I'm but, kind of drifting off. Are you... Are you talking about something? Or are you quoting Sticks lyrics? I'm I'm getting super confused right now. What Sticks lyrics am I quoting? I heard "fooling yourself" and then I kind of just spun <laughs> off. I was like, "What's what's he? Is he quoting? Is this a reference?" Rick, Jim, and I each grew up in a home that was equidistant from the home of the drummer from Sticks. The exact distance between our homes was the distance from each of our homes to the drummer from Sticks. Drummer or guitarist? J.Y.? Are you was, talking about J.Y.? Are you talking about Chuck Pen, Penoz, Pen, Penzono? Well, you tell me, Rick, because you clearly know more than I do. No, no, I can't remember the... Because the, the drummer and the bass player were twins, right? The Pans, mm. Panzano brothers? Some kind of I've, Italian name, I would think you would all know. All those Italians look the same to you, Rick. They might as well all be twins. Well, no, they I were guess. twins. I know they were twins. <laughs> I think was, uh, Rick and I are, aren't we related to... J.Y.? J.Y., yeah. We're related yeah, to he, J.Y.? He would, J.Y. would show up in, in the village, you know, at some t- and my mom accosted him once and was like... I love Mr. Roboto, <laughs> I think is what she said. <laughs> Why don't you come over for Thanksgiving? Yeah. <laughs> Once again, our, our listenership has made an inexplicable jump. Mm-hmm. On Monday, January 30th, our listenership jumped by 43%. Whoa. Which means we've octupled our listenership since ending the podcast on October 21st, 2021. <laughs> it was 2021 that we ended it? That was the last episode? Okay. Episode. Got it. So you don't think this is kind of the result of people thinking, oh, it's the last special episode, I better listen. And then the audience increases in size and then they, they get angry when they find out there's, there's still more episodes. But this is our final special promise episode. And it is uh, T-C-F-O-S-V-E-T-T-E-T. Okay. The cat from outer space versus E.T., the extraterrestrial. Oh, okay. So away we go. Actually, one, one more thing, and then, and then we'll get into the body of the episode. I do, I have an apology, and this one's really embarrassing. This one's bad, guys. It pertains to our summer episode. Which summer? <laughs> the one where we went on the road trip. Oh, okay. The one after the last episode. <laughs> Correct. The summer okay. episode after the, the last summer episode after the last episode. All right. I'd like to preface my apology by saying that I like Jane's addiction. When I first got to college in the fall of 1988, my friend Scott and I poured over their live album in anticipation of acquiring their upcoming release, Nothing Shocking. After devouring that release, we went on to love and cherish Ritual de Lo Habitual. All that said, the appreciation I have for Jane's addiction 
is not comparable to the reverence I have for the digits. I discovered the digits soon after I heard that first Jane's Addiction album, and I found myself in a far deeper and loving admiration for truly what we called back then, quote, underground music. That copy of the Fizz Job slash Hey Judester CD got worn through, and when we discovered Hornet Pinata a couple years later, I knew the digits were something far beyond incredibly special. On top of all that, they were from Illinois and on Touch and Go. They were, in many senses, a perfect band in my mind. Not unlike the band that Rick and Jim are in. I say all this as a preface to my apology because a listener and friend of ours pointed out that on the Evil and Bob and Woody special promise episode of this show... Actually, that wasn't a special promise. Sorry, I gotta nix that. (laughs) (laughs) The editor will take care of it. Let me edit. Yeah, he'll edit this. I say all this as a preface to my apology because a listener and friend of ours pointed out that on the Evil and Bob and Woody special episode of this show, I mistakenly confused the Sublime Digits tune, Dad, a song of pure admiration for what I assume to be a kick-ass, super cool 70s father, with the really good Jane's Addiction song, Had a Dad, a funky blast of rock that semi-criticizes yet comes to grip with an absentee father. So, to our audience... I apologize for speculating that Kurt Cobain was referencing the digits in the lyrics of Serve the Servants. That was pure idiocy on my part. If anything, Cobain was referencing Jane's addiction, but I doubt it. Oddly enough, it seemed far more likely to me that Cobain would be into the digits than into Jane's addiction. There is, though, a letter, right? There's a letter from, I'm assuming the brother's dad that's on one of the records. Is it on the record that has the rec- song called Dad? Yeah, it's not a reverent sort of like right. letter. It's a kind The letter of a, is, yeah, pretty intense from what I remember. Right. I am your father, I am not your friend or something like that. It's got oh, things yes. like that in it, yeah. right? <laughs> yeah. yeah. I think it's understandable you mixed it up because I did. I understand because that's the same thing I did. I was like, oh, I don't actually remember the song. I remember the letter and the liner notes. Yeah, but the song is You Were My Dad, You Were So Rad, You Were Gnarly. Oh, uh, yeah. Even when you rode your Harley. Harley, I mean, it's like, yeah. Yeah. So I guess if you, yeah, the letter. So I forgot about the letter, but you're right. That's probably how I got it all jumbled up in my mind. Anyway, to finish my apology. And to Rick Digit, I apologize for confusing your masterpiece with a Jane's Addiction song. No shade to Jane's Addiction, but digits are held in rarefied air to me, and I should have never made that mistake. I hope you all can forgive me in my defense I never said I was smart. <laughs> and then I just want to finish this this segment by saying that Steven Spielberg owes Ted Key an apology. <laughs> <laughs> is Ted Key the author of, the writer of, uh, yeah. who's Ted it's Key? The director. The director. Was, I thought it was yeah. oh, the writer. Tokar. He's, oh, he's the yeah. writer. his name. Is that what it is, the writer? The, okay. the director right here. is Norman Tokar. Ted Keys. Jim look, has the uh, novelization. He has two. two, two different copies. So he's held. He held up one novelization of the Cat from Outer Space, and it says by Ted Key, and we're just astounded. And then he holds up a second copy with a different cover. He has two this copies one, of the novelization. This one's got some stuff from the film. Oh. This is the American. This is the British one. I just got this one. Yeah. I got this like a couple of years ago when this first came up or whatever last year. But yeah, I found this one just now. It's, it's, it's in 
poorer shape, but it. So was it translated? Back. Is the British version translated <laughs> into British into, English? Yeah, it seems shorter. It's thinner. The British one is. <laughs> wow, surprisingly, you're right. oh, I, I didn't go through the whole thing, but it seems it seems like it's print? the same text, but it's oh. just obviously I don't know. It's printed differently. Well, let's look but, at the size of the text in those books. Yeah, they, they look pretty similar. But. And podcasting being a visual medium, this is all fascinating. <laughs> mm-hmm. I have a I have a concern. I'm super worried that people are going to think that Jim and I were in sticks. <laughs> <laughs> no, Jim already that, said what band you're in. Okay. He, you got to be listed, but I'll cut that out. Yeah, you just go, do a tone. I'll use that exact sound that you just the, made. <laughs> I'll sample <laughs> Middle-aged man <laughs> slipping on the floor <laughs> when he's His alone in the rattles. house. Yeah, yeah. It's like that's the noise I made when when I had that large shelving unit pin me to the to the wall in the basement one day when I was in the house by myself. It's just like, oh, here we go. Man found dead in basement. One of the things I tried to do to be a better father to my son because I was always on the road. Speaking of absentee dads, bad dads, dads who write mean letters to their sons. I never did that, but... There's time. There's time. (laughs) He wrote a mean text to me once, but he apologized for it. So I love him. He's a good kid. And hating your dad is a part of growing up, I I always thought. You guys Mm -hmm. probably didn't. You probably loved your dad, but... I remember saying to one of our drummers who was like, wouldn't it be great to have a kid? And I was like... Yeah, like have a boy who worships you like a god for 10 years and then hates you for, for 20 years. For a good five. <laughs> for a good five. Yeah, I was like, he did not like that. Yeah, it's a part of it. I think it's yeah. a part of it. I thought that maybe if I read him Spider-Man, that we, you know, I'd lay in bed with him and read him the Spider-Man comic books. And we read, I think, 16 or 17 years of Spider-Man from like year one to... You know, starting with Amazing Tales or whatever it was. Was that an expensive process? I just bought the collected oh, versions okay. in the hard copy and then gave them those. But it, it was like 50 bucks a year, I think. Okay. It wasn't like you had Spider-Man number one and it was like... <laughs> no. Okay. <laughs> I am not that kind of comic person. Um, You're not that kind of dad. I'm not that good of a dad, no. And I used to do all the voices and everything. Actually, and when he got really mad at me, he's like... Remember when you used to read me Spider-Man? You used to do all the dumb voices. I was like, <laughs> oh. that really cut. That cut yeah. really deep. I was like, you motherfucker. <laughs> I, I worked hard on my Dr. Octopus. Anyway, <laughs> there's an episode of Spider-Man that I got really scared where he got crushed by like a shelving unit. It was like mm-hmm. a giant machine. <laughs> and he had to, by sheer strength and will, get himself out of that. So when you describe, it was a weird, huge yellow machine. So when you describe this incident where you were pinned... Not to laugh, but when you were pinned in your basement <laughs> with no help in sight, I picture you like a young Peter Parker you know, having that moment. And like he, that's essentially what he does. He's just like, I got to do this or I'm going to die, basically. And he, he gets the huge thing off of him. So how did it go for you, Rick? Was it was it the same? Did you like just, lifting a car? Like, you know, yeah. when they... Yeah, people... it was more of a... I, I used my robotic arms. It was more of a Doc Ock <laughs> thing. Cool. I can't remember what I did. It wasn't. It wasn't like it was just. I kind of got stuck, and then I, yeah, I, I, yeah, I just kind of brute forced my way out of it. Wiggled? Did you wiggle? Wiggle? I wiggled. No, that doesn't sound very uh, <laughs> macho. I did not wiggle. There was no wiggling involved. It's okay. You can you can wiggle, Jim. Where did you read those books? 
No, I scanned them a little. I I was gonna do some serious homework and read them, but I I, uh, I read a little bit. It's pretty much. I, I'm pretty sure they're written after the movies. They're pretty much you know verbatim. Ted Key. We can just start talking about it. Like Ted Key was kind of like a cartoonist, I think, and he created uh, Mr. Peabody and Sherman. Oh wow! At Bullwinkle. Oh, wow. Is, so that explains are, maybe Hans Conried being in. It's just Hans Conried was one of a hundred character actors available right. for work one and week. He, which one? He was in Bullwinkle, or he was, was he, he was Snidely Whiplash. Snidely Whiplash. Okay. Wow. Yeah. He he. Uh, the writer writer of the Cat from Outer Space, Ted Key was yeah created Mr. Peabody and Sherman and Hazel. The made the TV show that which was, was like based was on it was like strip, he, right? he did a cartoon or something. Wow. The originally the, the TV show is based on his cartoon. Yeah. Norman Tokar, whose name I recognize, and I thought he was yeah. a big time director, but he he, he he directed like lots of episodes of Leave It to Beaver. To, when I saw his name too, I was like, Oh, he's yeah. like a big is he, yeah. I've heard of him and yeah, he's yeah. just he's like a TV guy, right? Yeah. I think. Yeah. And well he directed the Apple Dumpling gang also. So he, <laughs> Yeah, he was the go to Disney, Disney director for the yeah. all the seventies movies we watched. And this film played like a TV show. In fact, was it a TV movie? Because I couldn't find box office. Mm. I couldn't get box office numbers on it. We saw it in the theater. Yeah. I believe this is the movie our mother said, actually, as an example of the awful movie she had to watch with us at the LaGrange Theater on Saturday morning matinee. She said, I had to sit through the cat from outer space. <laughs> I think she actually name-checked this movie as an example of how bad the movies were that a mom right. in the 70s had to sit through. With her, with her children because they, they weren't on TV. Right. Go to the LaGrange Theater a Saturday afternoon and watch The Cat from Outer Space. How did she feel about E.T. the Extraterrestrial? I, I believe we went with her, Jim and myself. Yeah. And Mom Rewound. <laughs> Mom Found and Rewound. Mrs. Found and Rewound is what I call her. I had an intestinal incident. Like, I had to leave the theater, but also a large number of people from my, what would have been junior high school, were in the theater at the same time. So it was Rick Rewound with his mother and younger <laughs> brother in a movie theater with a bunch of uh, his peers um, who were out, you know, having fun with no adults. They were watching <laughs> E.T. And so it was, it was a very painful moment in my life. Did you turn huh. like ashen white and did your stomach start to glow red? <laughs> <laughs> I, well, I believe, and I still am ashen white. I think that's just my complexion. <laughs> I think people have often said to me, you, you look kind of like a sick E.T. When you're filling out those demographics on like a, a job <laughs> application, you, you skip Caucasian and just go right to ashen white. Ashen white, so yes, cool. exactly. <laughs> Bloodless, question mark. Similar to my claim that, you know, it was a false claim that Hereditary and Exorcist Three were too similar in nature, although we did find a lot of references in Hereditary to Exorcist Three. These are nearly, you know, take out a gambling problem and, <laughs> and you've got yourself E.T. in The Cat from Outer Space. It is pretty amazing, yes. Jim's hypothesis was, was pretty... Pretty accurate. What's your hypothesis? Yeah. <laughs> what does he say? It's like, I, I believe Colonel oh, Potter, Colonel right. Potter in quotes, 
by the way, I should say, the film features McLean Stevenson and Harry Morgan just after the two of them worked on the set of MASH together. That's right. Harry Morgan was on MASH before he was Colonel Potter. He made appearances, <laughs> right? Was that, that, that was a trivia question. How many times? I can't read. <laughs> I can't see it. It's, here my notes say, the film features McLean Stevenson and Harry Morgan just after the two of them worked on the set of MASH together, and then in parentheses, pause for Rick interruption, because I thought I had him. I thought he'd be like, no, no, Chris. But then Rick, then I was going to end by saying where Morgan played Major General Bartford Hamilton Steele, and then, you know, Trap, I thought I had Rick trapped. <laughs> Man. And of course, I did not. Yes. I watched a lot of MASH. You almost got me. I was ready to go, no, that's not true. <laughs> but I, yeah, I completely forgot about, yeah. Impressive. Rick Rick is, Rick is pulls this stuff out. It's pretty impressive. He also had to fight the urge to think that I was <laughs> doing something stupid. <laughs> I'm going to take that as a, a vote of confidence in my intellect from Rick. <laughs> if that helps you out, that's fine. <laughs> You need a little validation from the boss, the podcast boss. Yeah, that's right. I want, I want my boss's approval. <laughs> I have in my notes here, Roddy McDowell. That's, all, that's the only note. <laughs> I have it in my mind every time. In fact, I'm almost there right now is that Roddy McDowell was the voice of the cat from outer space, and he is not. But a year from now, if somebody talks to me about the cat from outer space, I will be convinced. <laughs> That Roddy McDowell is the cat's voice again. It's Ronnie Schnell. Yeah. Who plays Jake the cat. He also played, and we all remember him in this role, the dad in Toomey and the Giant Tumor. <laughs> well, he's he's in the, he's also a character in the movie. He's one of the yeah. the military guys. He's, he's he the says sergeant. a couple of things. Yeah, he's the gag, the you know, the the colonel, captain, sergeants, you know, when they keep Deferring to the lower rank, he's the lowest. He's the sergeant. He's he's the one who has to do everything. That's yeah. yeah. He's doing double duty. I was like, what the heck? That was the whole thing. Is in the old days, the voiceover actors, right? So like Casey Kasem, you know, did all those voices on Scooby Doo, but he only got paid for one, right? Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering if this guy also only got paid for one acting gig, mm -hmm. even though he did both the cat's voice and this character. Yeah. I don't think so, because if you listen to our last, our, sorry, our previous guest, Michael McLoss podcast, Slate Your Name, he talks to an actor who played twins and was paid twice. Well, they changed the rules. And I think Casey Kasem's responsible partially for some of that. He was like, why the hell am I doing half the voices on half the cartoons in the world and I'm only getting paid for one voiceover gig? I think that changed. Well, that's just one of the ways that Casey Kasem changed the world. So thank you, Casey, again. I thought if they redo this movie, John Worcester should do the voice. He, so, he always sounded like John Worcester to me. Hmm. So do you think the Roddy McDowell thing is because of Planet of the Apes? I just assume that he, if there's going to be a voice... Oh, no, but Roddy McDowell's the robot in the black hole, right? <laughs> wow. Yeah, I... Roddy McDowell does the irritating robot in the black hole, the robot that ruins the whole movie. Are you talking about Ahmed Best? No, that's that's Jar Jar Binks. Binks. <laughs> It's, it's similar. It's a similar taint. The movie is tainted by... I'm not sure you know what a taint is. <laughs> You're using that word a lot, Rick. He tainted it. Yes, that works. We'll let that, we'll let that one go. Here's some things. 
Opens with an egg-shaped spaceship landing in a rural setting. The ship is represented by lights. The government is quickly engaged. The protagonist befriends the alien in his home and adopts the alien powers. The alien is left behind by its people, right? The, right. It's, yeah. you know, it's told, it's kind of, well, in E.T. at least there's no talking, right? It just becomes obvious that they're dumping him. They're leaving E.T. behind, whereas they actually, there's a lot more explaining going on in The Cat from Outer Space, right? There's a lot more plot in The Cat from Outer Space. It's, <laughs> you know... <laughs> I mean, looking at these books again, you know, like if I was going to buy a, a novelization of E.T. and I didn't, but I bet it would be half as long, you know, because that's what I, I took from us too, is like E.T. is like, did not have to be two hours long. And The Cat from Outer Space, I don't think it was quite two hours, but it, there's a lot going on. It's a dense plot. When I was watching E.T., Rose Rewound said, said, oh, I know everything in this movie. And she said, because I read the novelization of E.T., so I, it's entirely possible I have a copy of the E.T. novelization in my house somewhere. I read the novelization of E.T. when I was a kid, too. I love the movie so much. In fact, it's the first movie novelization I've ever read, so it's wow. funny that you had those books. Cat from Outer Space was one hour and 44 minutes long. E.T. the Extraterrestrial was one hour and 54 minutes long, mm. so 10 minutes longer. 10 minutes yeah. more plot. This reminds me when you're talking about the novelizations is I do remember I worked as a janitor in my grade school school district over summers and I remember sitting in my old grade school uh, reading a novelization of Herbie the Love Bug. <laughs> And what was really interesting about it is it would say things like, Jerry was a mechanic who looked surprisingly like Buddy Hackett. That was actually in the novelization where I was like, this is really lazy writing. That's lazy. Or it explains why the character in the movie looks like Buddy Hackett. Right. They had the book and it's like, oh man, why don't we just get, you know what? We've been looking for a perfect person for this. Why don't we just get Buddy Hackett? The protagonist enjoys the power of flight. In an escape from the government, the alien makes the protagonist's bike fly over men with guns. Two-wheeled vehicle. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> oh, yeah. I, I thought the McLean Stevenson character was sort of analogous to Elliot's brother. Mm. Yeah, Elliot's brother is like uh, a younger version of the McLean Stevenson character in Cat and from the, Outer Space. And Roddy McDowell was the man with the keys. Peter Coyote. Mm. <laughs> I just recently realized is that's not his real name. That's his hippie name. <laughs> it seems so I just, obvious. Yeah, yeah, I know. Like after reading about Peter Coyote and realizing he was, what was he a uh, member of the, uh, not the Weavers, what were they called? The crazy anarchist, you know, collective in San Francisco. He was a really big part of that. The people who did the free food and free clothing. And anyways, go on. That's my Peter Coyote trivia. Great job, Rick. <laughs> That's why you don't need study for these episodes. You just got that right up in the dome there. Honestly, I watched E.T. a week ago. I would have this at the top of mind if... <laughs> <laughs> if Jim didn't need time to read the novelizations, both novelizations. Yeah, I had to do some reading, apparently, <laughs> to talk about a movie. So there was the gambling. That was the one thing that was different was this gambling thing. It's like... One movie goes towards gambling, the other movie goes towards Halloween. You equate the two somehow? It's just vices, sins, anti-Christian <laughs> activity. Did you notice one of the football teams that were playing in the parlay, the three-game parlay that he had to win, Jim? The Bears. 
And then the Oilers. Oilers, of course. And the Oilers won the game. So it's interesting. For me, whenever <laughs> whenever a sports are mentioned or a sports team is mentioned, all I hear is static. It just kind of goes like... <laughs> I, don't, I have no memory of what the teams were. It's fascinating. The uh, alien is incapacitated by doctors. Did you notice who played the vet who put uh, the Jake the cat asleep? Do you know who that vet was, who the actor was? No. Uh, what's his name? Alan Young. He played Wilbur on Mr. Ed. He was Mr. Ed's uh, owner oh, from the yeah. Mr. Ed TV show. Wow. So that's an interesting, wow. weird connection. He plays yeah. a vet. Because what, what was Wil- Wilbur was just a guy who had a horse, though, right? I'm trying yeah. to remember what Wilbur's job was in Mr. Ed. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. And he talked to the horse. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Oh, he was an architect, right? No, oh, Mr. Hey. Brady was an architect, yeah. but Wilbur was always at home. I feel like <laughs> Wilbur was an architect, too. I got to look that up. Continue. Uh, I said the slow motion scene in the pool hall is like the frog dissection scene. <laughs> wow, now you're, I think now you're starting to yeah, stretch it a bit, but but that's okay. The rest of the balls were relevant once she sunk the eight ball. So that was, you know, when if you sing the eight ball on the break, which is what she did, you win the game. So the rest mm. of the balls going in, mm. that moment of tension didn't really matter. <laughs> Felis catus, they present that as like the scientific name for cat. And I looked and, it up. It's true. Yeah, it's, it's true. Cats. Yeah. The reduced gold in the cat from outer space looks like a golden joint. Mm-hmm. Remember how he like takes all that gold and he turns it into a little component mm. for his ship? So lots of inside like jokes for the grown-ups, maybe? I think so. Yeah, Wilbur was a architect in Mr. Ed also. Wow. So he'd work at his drafting table. He'd be sitting yeah. at a drafting table and the horse would be sticking its big, That's... giant, irritating head into his <laughs> living room, talking to him while he's trying to design, you know, a, a building. <laughs> So then my last note about both these films, many, many, many similarities, and the the ends were very different. Except for, so there is that sort of like harrowing chase on the bikes to get E.T. back to the spaceship, and then he takes off. And then in uh, The Cat from Outer Space, there's this incredible air stunt between a helicopter and an airplane. I mean, to get a helicopter and an airplane to go the same speed and be able to move from one to the other, incredibly dangerous. And I realized... It comes off so flat, and like you say, Jim, it, the film seems a lot longer than E.T. because the music is absolutely terrible. Just, <laughs> it is, if you watch that scene and listen to the music in that scene, it is garbage, just the worst. And John Williams could have made that scene incredible. My feeling about John Williams' score in E.T., and actually, yeah, this is interesting because Rewound Jr., he's not quite Rewound Jr., one of the younger Rewounds, came in during both films and was like complaining about the music in E.T. and then complaining about how long the airplane scene was in Cat from Outer Space. It's like, <laughs> how long has this been going on? It feels like this is like at least 10 or 15 minutes. But I also remember, I feel like the music in E.T. is really schizophrenic. And I, there's, I mean, I don't want to get too deep into E.T. already, but but it's like the weird Hitchcock-isms yeah. that... Bernard that, Herman ripoff. Yeah parts yeah that didn't make any sense it's right at the beginning when he goes he starts yeah. riding off on his bike and it's all dun, dun, and it's like it's a hitchcock movie all of a sudden it's like why but why is it a there's hitchcock? it's not just the music though i think spielberg is doing hitchcock stuff in it and it's like mm. they're both are i almost feel like i mean obviously john williams massively influenced by bernard herman mm-hmm. also it feels like yeah there's a weird hitchcock like let's let's do this kind of like Hitchcock, and it makes absolutely no sense to me. Where it's like, 
Yeah, I'd never noticed it before, but even some of the shots. There's a the the ver- there's a vertigo shot in ET. It's mm, just it's it's I, a weird vertigo shot. It's not like a I missed show that. Which, one. which was that? Yeah, it's it's kind of like it's like he's just doing it to do it. It's not even like hey everybody, I'm doing the vertigo shot. It's like kind of like which part was I didn't see that. It's like just like a isn't it just like showing the the neighborhood or something? Mm. Yeah, it's weird. I, I think it's like Elliot remember. looking at something. But first of all, it's called a dolly zoom. It's not called the vertigo shot. Second, <laughs> I call all, it. Everybody <laughs> knows when I say vertigo shot, everyone knows what I'm talking about. One of the most famous dolly zooms in the film in film history is in Jaws when the kid mm. gets eaten by the shark and they yep, zoom in that's on Brody right. getting the back yeah. massage from his wife. And uh, he does that similar shot. But you're right. I just think it's a young director making you know homage to his ears uh-oh ricky okay did you drink is there yeah no i yeah young director give me a break what this is post <laughs> young director give yeah. me a break what the heck that's no excuse i mean how many movies had he made by then we all know how hard rick is on steven spielberg on this podcast is et the movie after 1941 it is yeah so i think it, it goes um duel then jaws then close encounters then 1941 then E.T. Mm-hmm. And he needed a win. I, I actually yeah. think this this film is really sloppy. It hangs together, I think, viscerally. The plot is all over the place. There's so many things that are just left hanging. Like, there's one shot where they go out for Halloween and they leave Gertie, right. like, alone, waiting by a bike. They never cook back up with Gertie. Gertie's just left out. Yeah, and then they show she shows up, you know, as a ghost. Like, yeah, how did how did that's what right when this all started? How they're sneaking him out, and it's like, okay, where is she? How are they getting her to the rendezvous point? And but she just shows up. She's there. Total tangent, but this the same type of thing happened. I just watched an episode of The Wild Wild West, and he gets shrunken to six inches tall, and then there's a whole explanation that he's wearing his outfit, but then the female henchman has has sewn him his outfit. But then when the shrink reverses at the end of the show, he's fully clothed. He doesn't burst out of his little tiny outfit and then has to put on a new outfit. He's just, <laughs> his outfit increased in size with him mm-hmm. then also. And it got me really upset. Mm-hmm. I was just like... It wasn't yeah. realistic like the Hulk. It wasn't. Yeah. It was like... And then go to all the trouble explaining how this woman built, sewed while he was unconscious... And shrunken, she sewed a little outfit for him, a little doll's outfit. Go through all that, explain <laughs> that. But then at the end, his miniature clothing expanded to when he went back to full size. It really bothered me. There's a scene in the very end of the film when E.T. gets into his spaceship. The spaceship takes off, hits the sky, and it does that like rainbow zoom thing. Yeah. And then they cut back to the family and they're like smiling and crying and all the trees behind them are blowing like viciously and there's like all this light shining and it's like clearly they meant to cut those close-ups in as the ship was raising off the ground Mm. but they didn't they waited till the ship was like well gone (laughs) and then used those scenes to be like well let's show the kid again and let's show the mom again but they don't make sense because that wind and light and stuff wouldn't be happening the spaceship is way long gone and my wife's like you're just being picky and i'm like no spielberg just threw together this low budget film and he just hit on a nerve i don't know he just got lucky the budget of this film was 10.5 million dollars and it made 793 million dollars <laughs> yeah it's the uh creature et 
is like so lame, you know, the... <laughs> the and uh, apparently, they fixed it. I mean, that's the thing, is it was worse. So yeah, it's, it's been tweaked over the that's years. That's amazing if that's fixed, because... He's done a little bit of lucasing on the film, I know that. It's, yeah. It was even worse. Because I think I remember thinking that, as a kid, like, I was 13, I think, when I saw this, and I, I don't think I liked this movie at all. I, I don't know. I mean, I, I was kind of bought into it, I think, but I, it didn't affect me, really. I haven't seen it since the one time... When, saw it in the theater and and i think i remember kind of being confused by or just how yeah lame et seemed like <laughs> i didn't i mean i get it kind of like the eyes the big eyes and everything they're going for that but it's just the whole design of it it never flew with me it was like this is so lame <laughs> he's a lame creature and he's supposed to be kind of you know he's innocent you know he's like plodding along and i get, yeah, get exactly. all that but it's still it just looks so crappy so i was sitting with a 13 year old he he, came, he would come in and out and watch bits of the movie and it was the conversation we had about the spaceship no it was the end where he's going up the spaceship and, it, and it's like really interesting and, and, and we were both commenting it's really interesting that this alien race designed a spaceship <laughs> That requires you to waddle up this ramp. It seems <laughs> right. like why would you, why would you design a ship that has the worst possible entryway for your own type of alien? Well, they couldn't yeah. have used stairs. They were really and they couldn't right, bend but his it, knees. It's still, mm-hmm. it was like wouldn't they? Maybe they would have like some kind of crane or something, right? Mm-hmm. Like like having yeah, to can, waddle. He can make bikes fly through the air. Can't they just make a little platform right? that they can telepathically raise themselves up into the it's ship? Like, and, Oh no no no! We can't, safety reasons. We can't we can't levitate you into the ship. You've got to waddle for about fifteen minutes, like a beached whale, to get into into the ship. That's like a design problem. You can travel light years, but you still haven't figured out how to how to build an entryway to your own spaceship. And they should have just made a, a suit. You know, it's like then it would just be oh, it's just a guy in a rubber suit. But this is just it's just a, a jerky mechanical armature. Oh. No, in there a was suit. a guy in a suit. Well, was there, there sometime? Okay, there at some point, but shots. but some of that yeah. stuff is just jerky, mechanical. There was some really weird multiple blinking that went on with his eyes, and then there was mechanical blinking. Now that you say that they fixed it, they must have added the blinking. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, and also the blue screen bicycles was <laughs> atrocious. Yeah, I mean, like you could barely see the bicycles, particularly the tires. I mean, we talk about industrial light and magic, and I watch all these specials and stuff. The flying bicycles, and they show that scene is like a like this is one of the amazing scenes. It looks terrible. Yeah, it's nice. It's, you know what I'd say? It's it's cat from outer space quality. <laughs> Kansas City. Food-wise, a city famous for its barbecue. But that's about to change. My name is W. Dave Keith, host of the podcast Taco the Town, and I believe that Kansas City is one of the most underrated, underappreciated, up-and-coming taco towns in the USA. On Taco the Town, we will shine a light on all the amazing tacos Kansas City has to offer. Kansas City is a great taco town filled with a variety of untapped taco stylings and flavors, and on the Taco the Town podcast, we won't stop until we've tasted every taco in the town. No taco table will go unturned. Each episode, we review a new taco joint with a special guest. We share taco memories, discuss taco topics, and put tacos to the test. We check the latest stories in taco news, and no taco is off the table on Taco the Town. If you love tacos, like I do, you're going to love Taco the Town. Available on iTunes, Stitcher, Podbean, and Google Play. That's Taco the Town.
All right, welcome back to Lost and Found and Rewound, our final episode. Uh, we're talking about the cat from outer space and E.T. the extraterrestrial. Rick and Jim, how much older is E.T. the extraterrestrial from the cat from outer space? Do we know both their ages? <laughs> I'm not talking about the characters. I'm talking about the film itself. So uh, I think it's four. Four. Rick, what is your guess? Is it even that much? It's like 78? Is the cat from outer space 78? Yep. Yeah, so that's E.T.'s... Oh, is E.T. not 1980? Is it 81? 82. 82, really? Oh, okay. So Jim's Four right. years was the answer. Yeah, so I was in high school. I was already in high school when I... Yeah, I was 13 when I yeah. saw it. Yeah, so I was already jaded. It was like, I'm not buying into this. <laughs> this E.T. bullshit. It caught me at the right age. I like. Yeah. I loved it. Absolutely loved it. Cried and everything. So it was when I when I sort of was at my peak. At your most vulnerable. Yeah, I think Raiders was right after this. Maybe. Yeah, probably. Yeah. When was always? I don't know. I don't care. I know it's Richard Dreyfus in an airplane, right? That's all I know about always. <laughs> I don't like Richard Dreyfus either, so I I don't oh. know that you've got <laughs> Richard Dreyfus is great. <laughs> not a Dreyfus fan. <laughs> What don't you like about Richard Dreyfus? Richard Dreyfus, if you watch the documentaries on Jaws, he's like com- always like he kind of convicts himself. He's like always talking about how he's complaining about how bad the movie's going to be and how dumb his role is and how it's like yeah, it was a great movie. Like all of your instincts, if they had followed them, would have been wrong. He kind of is saying that. I found that annoying. How much older is Harry Morgan in The Cat from Outer Space than I am today? I'm fifty-two years old. <laughs> Oh, man. How many years older was Harry Morgan in The Cat from Outer Space? Harry Morgan was in the black and white dragnet, dragnets, but later. No, he was in the color dragnets. Was he, in, he wasn't in the black and white dragnets. But Harry Morgan is, is like a thug in a film noir. I can't remember what film noir Harry Morgan's in. So that means at least like late 40s, early 50s. What was the question? <laughs> I'm 52 years old. Okay. How old is Harry Morgan? In 1978, or, yeah, how old was Harry Morgan? I'm going to say 60. So you think he was eight years older than me, Jim? Yeah, I'm going to agree with Jim. He was 11 years older. He was 63 years old. 63. I was going to say 64. Which is not off. I mean, I think in 11 years, I will have white hair or no hair and will be old and grumpy and hopefully in as good a shape as Harry Morgan. He looks in pretty good shape. You'll be doing that show after Lost and Found and Rewound, trying to recapture the glory of your previous podcast. (laughs) Right. Yeah. Yeah, I forget what Harry Morgan's story was there. In Aftermash? Yeah, Klinger married someone who was Korean. I think Harry Morgan went back to his wife. Yeah, I don't think I ever watched Aftermash. How much younger was McLean Stevenson? In the film, The Cat from Outer Space, than me, I am 52 years old. <laughs> oh, hmm. McLean. How much younger was McLean Stevenson? Man, beer and cigarettes, really, it, it aged people. Gambling, too. Don't forget gambling. Yeah. Degenerate <laughs> gamblers up all night playing cards and then rolling on, onto the set with zero sleep. Jim, your guess, how much younger is McLean Stevenson than I am at 52? I'd say three years. Three years. And Rick, your guess? I'll say five. Five years. He is one year younger than me. <laughs> mm, he's okay. 51. Okay, oh. that's okay. I'm okay with yeah. that. All right. The last is Sorel Brook. 
uh, sorry, Sorel no. book. Sorel book. Is it Sorel or Sorel? Sorel book. I always say Sorel, but Sorel actually sounds probably better. Who was also in what movie that we watched? Boss Hogg. Now, my question was, was he hmm. the judge in um, the one with the bags, the movie you love so much? The one with the bags. Uh, What's up, Doc? What's up, Doc? No, he was not the judge, but he was in What's Up, Doc. Mm. He was the uh, hotel detective. Use your charm. Charm. And then he trips uh, the, the woman. That's Sorrel book. How much younger was Sorrel or Sorrel? Sor- I don't know how to say it. Book in the cat from outer space than I am today. This is the one that hurts. The other two I, I kind of, I think, okay. How does it hurt you? So if he's older... That would make sense, because he looks tremendously old in this film. I'll go with five this time. Five years, Jim says. Rick, your guess. I'm going to say the same age. No, four years younger. Mm. So it seems a little off. He was 48. Yeah. We've gotten through a lot here. Let's, let's ask, do you guys... So we, you said you didn't like E.T. Do you like The Cat from Outer Space? I'd love it. The cat from outer space is like, there's no pretense. It's like, it's just slapstick and B-movie hijinks. Whereas E.T. gets so, well, it worked. I mean, E.T. worked. Like, you, everybody loves it, but it's like so, takes itself so seriously. <laughs> By the end, there's, it's so overwrought. And, but it, it's a kid's movie. I mean, I, Both are kid's movies. But what you said, Jim... Yeah, what? what you said about the plot being, like, E.T. being, like, really thin, that's what I noticed is, it's like, it's a super linear... And it, go, it goes on forever. Yeah, a children's storybook. It, like, has... It's so simple yeah. in terms of narrative. Whereas yeah. The Cat from Outer Space, regardless... It keeps going. Yeah, The Cat from Outer Space, I, I well, I'd watched it, you know, a couple of years when I first realized, when I was like, oh, this is like E.T. I, I hadn't seen it since I was a kid, and I watched it again, and then I watched it again for this, like a year, two years later, and I'd forgotten already. It's like it keeps going and going, and then there's, yeah, there's not just one bad, there's two bad guys, there's... It's deeper, that's you know, right. it's like it's got the same kind of anti-government, you know. That's the thing I don't like about ET2 is the anti-science and anti-government. I can kind of understand, you know, it's kind of true, you know. You should be wary of the government and stuff and science, but it can be damaging. But it, it's so, I don't want to say moronic, but it's just kind of like very simple and just a simple message. It's like, you know, you're killing him, you know, like when at the end and they're screaming. It's like Elliot is smart enough to know that they're trying to help him, you know, the it, they're not killing E.T. They're probably not helping that much, but he's already dying. And Well, Elliot is feeling that fear. I think Elliot is just vocalizing because he, they're, you know, they're connected. They've imprinted. Yeah. The thing about, well, the cat from outer space is it's kind of got the same thing. It's like the government, you know, they're kind of after him, but they're, they're not as, well, E.T., it turns a corner. You know, it's like, it's kind of, they're not that bad. It's like they're, they're this ominous group. Peter Coyote at the end seems, you know, He's, yeah. Peter Coyote says, like, E.T. came to me when I was a kid. Right. Like, where the fuck is this coming from? Like, so E.T. visited <laughs> you? Like, he doesn't recognize you. That, that was a weird twist. In the, the Cat from Outer Space, it seems more nuanced a bit. It's like the plot, it gets way more complex because there's a, a third party. The second, the uh, <laughs> the best part of the movie, I think, it's like Mr. Olympus, you know? Yeah. It's like the real bad guy, you know, it's like the government or they're just kind of plot, you know, it's the, the, the military, they're just like blundering in and just stomping around, you know, they, they don't really, they're just trying to protect the country and they're just doing whatever. Whereas Mr. Olympus is the true evil. I completely forgotten about that part of the movie. And that just was like, oh, it's, it's hilarious. It's just like, 
he, he's such a great character and that could have been a whole movie with Mr. Olympus. That could have been a spin-off yeah, movie. Spin-off. Yeah, totally. The only difference between these two films, I think they're incredibly similar, mm-hmm. is this criminal element, whether it be gambling <laughs> or Mr. Olympus. Other than that, it's the same. I know you posited the theory almost in jest, Jim, but do you do you now believe that E.T. was plagiarized from the cat from outer space? And that are you filing a court case <laughs> on behalf of Ted Key against Steven Spielberg? I have to say, I kind of stepped back from it after, like you on the last episode, like with uh, Exorcist 3, not totally, but watching E.T. again, like uh, it seems like definitely Steven Spielberg was kind of revisiting his own, you know, Close Encounters. Like he was like making Close Encounters for kids. There's definitely parallels to that just with the ship, just simple visual things. Well, the blinds effects, yeah. like the the light coming through the, the blinds, that's totally the stark, you know, bright lights cutting through the Venetian blinds. My wife and I recognize that the two things that really make Spielberg films incredibly powerful are the light direction, the lighting direction. And I don't know if that's a cinematography thing. I couldn't find like lighting director for the film. Like I couldn't find a credit for it. Yeah, usually the cinematographer, right? Or the director of photography is, yeah, because uh, what's mm. his name? You know, does mm. all the Coen Brothers films. Cin- uh, cinematographer. It sounded like you guys were saying cinematographer. It's like thinking of cinnamon. Roger Deakins <laughs> is all about lighting. He's always talking about lighting. Your homework assignment, Rick, is to dig up. Is that the cinnamon the cinematographer's job, <laughs> or is it? Is there? I mean, I know there's probably a lighting person on the the crew, but who's directing and like framing all of those scenes? Yeah, like, it's usually the, the cinematographer. John Allen Davio did the color purple Empire of the Sun also. It was like Spielberg's go-to guy. Who's the electrician, the head electrician? Best Best Boy is the assistant to the whoever. Right. What's that? It's the, the guy who that's who sets up, he's in charge of setting up all the lights and he's the head electrician mm-hmm. guy. And the Best yeah. Boy is the assistant to, what's that term? It's like one of those main. The vision for lighting comes from the cinematographer and that the But the I think the guy, the guy, the electric, those guys who set up the lights, the whoever is the head, they work with the cinematographer. They definitely right. know about lighting and sometimes those guys have a lot of input, I think, too. So he'll say, I want a pin light here. I want a spot here. You know, like he'll lay it out for them almost like an engineer. And yeah. And a lot of the cinematographers know about all that stuff too. And they know, and they'll like, I want this. And then they know how to tell those guys. And it, it kind of goes both ways, I think. So Rick, do you like the cat from outer space? Yeah, it's it's okay. But I, you know, I don't, <laughs> I don't think it's a great movie. I did, I got, I love seeing all the actors. Like it's, it is again, another film where it's just character actors on top of character actors. And then on top of it, it's like once they go into the gambling area, it's, it's kind of like you're already packed full of people in in the science side of things and the military side of things. And then all of a sudden they go to the gambling hall and it's like, oh my God, there's that guy and that guy and that guy. It's, it's, chock full of and then yeah the guy who plays uh olympus what was his name the, yeah um, he was mr. in uh olympus. yeah is mr olympus prince i wrote it yeah down. yeah he was in uh something the, i was trying to figure out where i recognized him from and he's he's i think he plays a similar character in network but not as well he doesn't have a goatee <laughs> 
So I love it for that reason, and I love the nostalgia of it. I kept forgetting who was in it, and like when Ken Berry showed up, I'm like, oh yeah, of course, Ken Berry's, you know, it's like you don't even see him. And then like Sandy Duncan disappears like for the whole middle of the movie and shows up again. <laughs> it's just kind of like how many of them are just showing up for a couple days' work? Like I could almost see like a spreadsheet, but it would have been on paper at the time, right? Where it's like, how can we maximize so we have, we only pay like Harry Morgan for two days of work? You know, and then also get Hans Hans Conried in here, and these people have like one or two days on set, and then they disappear from the movie for a while, and then they come back. It's kind of like the end of an era. The actors, but also the stunts, the crazy end. Yeah. That's the most incredible thing. The, you know, there's a lot of like studio stuff, and then there's scenes of the the real actors like outside in a parking lot, whatever, hanging from fake helicopters, and yeah. uh, which are work great. But then there's the re, the, the real s- shots of the with the stunt people doing that stuff. There, there's one scene with the biplane. The pilot was under a tarp. He's like hiding. There's something was happening, oh. and and at one point the pilot looks over. He looks over to his right or left. Like he, I think the way it looks like he he can't see out of the plane, or he's flying the plane without looking. He's basically crouched in the, the open cock the biplane with the tarp over his head. And at some point he he just reacts or turns his head, and I was like, oh, there's a guy there. That's the guy. That's the pilot. He's like crouched down, and whoever's pretending to be Ken Berry is up doing whatever. Yeah. Oh. It was very intense. It's just very da- yeah, dangerous. Like real well, gauges is the right answer, right? He had to, he had to keep the plane at a certain height and a certain speed, so he probably yeah. just focused on the gauges. Yeah, um, or- it's an incredibly dangerous stunt, though. A helicopter and a plane were not meant to fly <laughs> at the same speed. They just aren't built that way. Yeah. Helicopters don't necessarily fly forward very well. They fly up and down better than they fly forward. And right. I don't know. I couldn't. I I don't did, know how they did it. There were clearly were scenes where there were two aircraft in the air flying with for people real, hanging off with of them. People yeah. trying to but, jump from one to the other. <laughs> I mean, it's just insane. And, and the other part of like saying it's kind of the end of an era is also the uh, animal rights, you know, kind of like there's definitely, I think there, the cats were drugged in certain scenes and the animal, they're like parts where, well, there's a whole part where Jake is just, you know, it's all they're joking. Oh, he, is he sleep? You know, they're in the bar at the pool hall and he's like, he's sleeping. Yeah, he's sleeping, you know, and he's just, <laughs> it's the, it's the cat. He's not, he's, he's, they just gave him some kind of sedative. He's just completely knocked out. They're carrying him around for the, those scenes. And then Sandy Duncan's cat, I think in the helicopter scenes, there's somewhere that and she's, the cat is just like laying there. It's kind of eyes are kind of half open and it's like, it's the real cat. And it's just like completely, it's kind of awake, but it's, it's obviously <laughs> knocked out. And then they freeze that poor Doberman. <laughs> right. <laughs> it's different times. Last question. Well, what's, it actually was the changing of an era, right? 1978 to 1982 is four years difference. And there clearly is a tonal shift in the way a children's film is made. Yeah, with the gambling. That, that is definitely the crazy thing about Cat from Outer Space. All the illegal gambling is like, it's just kind of tongue in cheek. And it's just. But there is the alcohol in uh, E.T. still. And the divorce and the mom and the affair that's going on that that mm-hmm. caused the divorce they take out some very adult things like gambling and gangsters and they add in some very adult sort of topics it's like divorce and infidelity and you mm-hmm. know makes the government more ominous and less slapstick it clearly kind of turned a corner because kids films i don't know they didn't go back to looking so cheap and so hammy mm-hmm. after well, et you've yeah. obviously never seen the uh, spy kids franchise oh <laughs> I have seen a couple of those. They're terrible. <laughs> Sorry, Richard Rodriguez. I love 
Love your films. No, yeah, no. It's a beautiful thing that he he makes them all himself in his backyard. Right. With his kids. Very DIY. It's very cool. The other thing with E.T. I'd forgotten about, it's all everybody knows, or I'd completely forgotten, is the whole Reese's Pieces thing. Oh, yeah, yeah. It was like, that's made Reese's Pieces. And I looked that up, how supposedly true, it was like M&Ms. Right. And they didn't, they passed. And so Hershey said, oh, we'll we'll do a tie-in and it took Reese's Pieces hadn't been selling much and then it was like that's I totally remember that it was like oh Reese's Pieces yeah those, they're pretty good you know that was the first time I probably ever I had Reese's Pieces because they, they took off because of E.T. Does he say Reese's Pieces in the film or did he just say it in the commercials? No yeah I, don't, I remember distinctly hearing Reese's <laughs> I think there was an ad yeah it might have been an ad with that voice yeah when we it were sounds kids. like they didn't pay money you know it wasn't it was product placement but it was like we'll we'll do marketing deals it's like you use Reese's Pieces in the movies, and then we can use E.T. in our ads. We haven't talked about Melissa Matheson, who wrote the script. Right. Harrison Ford's ex-wife. She wrote The Black Stallion. Yeah. She also wrote Kundun. She's in the movie, too. Oh, is she? I think she's like the school nurse or something. And oh. shout out to Dee Wallace, who I think was great in the film. I just saw her playing a part in the Paul T. Goldman, Jason Wolner series. I don't know if you guys are watching that on Peacock. It's fascinating. It's a docu-series that includes a dramatic filming of his life. It's it's a very hard to explain concept, but it's it's really funny. And uh, it has real people, it has actors, and they all kind of mixes together into like a documentary on this guy's life, a documentary of them filming the film of his life and the film that they're making all kind of blended together into one comedy docuseries. It's great. And D. Wallace plays his uh, psychic in the in the show. I'm thinking about The Black Stallion and how amazing that movie is, but also how you write a script for a movie like that. And then I'm starting to think of comparing that to E.T. And then also The Black Stallion. It's a simple plot also. Every time I see that movie, it's amazing. Yeah. Because yeah, The Black Stallion gets stranded and away from his people and then it befriends <laughs> a young boy. And <laughs> oh my gosh. The Black Stallion jumps really high across this sort of ravine. Yeah. Maybe the cat from outer space is ripped off from the Black Stallion. What year? The Black Stallion, though, is like around the same time as the Probably cat from outer space. 79? Yeah, yeah. I bet that's it's what 79. I feel like. Yeah. Right. So yeah. maybe it was just in the air. This anti government sort of aliens as a metaphor for what's the alien? What are these aliens? What is this cat and this, uh, this strange monster, flippered monster? What, what are they? What do they represent? in late 70s, early 80s culture. Innocence. Innocence. I don't know. (laughs) The subject of a Neil Diamond song. I think it's too coincidental. I think that, I think it was an accident. I think she saw this cat from outer space and then went home and wrote E.T. not making the correlation, but there's just way too many, way too many similarities. Here's a hot seat question for you as we, we wrap up here. We'll start with Rick. What's the better movie? objectively, E.T. or The Cat from Outer Space? Relatively speaking, like if I was to judge E.T. against other, even other Spielberg films, I, I find it not so great. And there are irritating things about it. The weird Hitchcockisms, the visuals and the music. The Hitchcockisms and the Hermanisms are all really strange to me and off-putting. But watching The Cat from Outer Space, it's like watching a TV <laughs> 
It's like watching a TV movie, right? It's like watching a Rockford Files episode or something. You know, it, it feels it could be a TV crew. It doesn't have that extra layer of what makes a movie a movie. <laughs> or like it, like it, 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 the difference between an A and a B movie, right? I think The Cat from Outer Space is great, but it is a 70s era Disney live action film. They're all great and nostalgic and I love them, but it's kind of like kids who love iCarly or something, right? Like a TV show that has all this these layers and stuff and they're nostalgic about it and they love it. But if you look at it objectively, it's not that good. It's a TV show, right? And so The Cat from Outer Space is a, a live action Disney kids film. It's like all shot and wides and all the depth is like washed out of it because it's all really well lit. Yeah. It doesn't have that sort of artistry to it. But I, I don't know. I, I, I waffle because like Jim's original point, I think the storytelling in The Cat from Outer Space and the way it's edited, even though it's a little long, is far better than E.T. E.T. is just a bunch of, again, I, tr- I watched it again. Like this is just a, a visceral collection of scenes. And if you watch Raiders of the Lost Ark, it's the same thing. It's the same issues, same editing. It's just like, just edit it to be fun and evoke a response. Don't worry about whether or not it hangs together plot wise. People will just enjoy Enjoy the ride. It's more of a, an amusement park ride than it is a, a film. Mm-hmm. For some reason, I'm going to the Nutty Professor, Jerry, the Jerry Lewis Nutty Professor, right? And that has that brightly lit, cardboardy, almost TV looking cinematography, and yet it elevates. Like I watched that film, I haven't watched it in a long time, but it felt like it was pushing up against all of the ickiness of it and moving beyond with the slapstick and all the weird thematic stuff that's going on it it elevates beyond its container its cardboard box right whereas i feel like cat from outer space is great but it's not like i need to watch like the apple dumpling gang right and see if the apple dumpling gang like there's got to be a movie from that disney movie from that era that maybe it's freaky friday one of those films has got to go beyond or maybe it's escape from witch mountain who knows you know it's like they're all those films but it's like do any of them go beyond what they are which is kind of a B kids movie Saturday, Sunday matinee film. Herbie the Love Bug. I don't think any of them do. I think they're all about the same. I love The Cat from Outer Space. I don't like E.T., but if I had bypassed all of my pretentious cinema you know, snobbery, if I had to watch both of them in a vacuum, I would say, oh no, yeah, E.T.'s, that's a more professional film. There's more mm-hmm. things to focus in on. Like, I, I, Cat from yeah. Outer Space, I think multiple viewings, there's really not much to observe. Whereas I feel like E.T., there's there's a lot of depth to the film. But Jim, what is your answer? Objective Actually, I have a question there? also. Like, so I want to know if, like, what's Francois Truffaut's opinion? What was his opinion of both films? And then that'll, that, <laughs> that's what I want to know. Like, if Francois Truffaut, like, you find some writing where he says the Cat from Outer Space is amazing, then I could probably be convinced. And then saying <laughs> E.T. is shit, I'd be like, oh, okay. He makes a point. Like, that would be somebody who would be able to distill why the cat from outer space. Or maybe it's Jim. Jim will distill why the cat from outer space is a better film. French New Wave stuff had was sort of done in wides with a lot of, you know, well lit scenes. So, I mean, so Cat from Outer Space is more of a French New Wave film, whereas E.T. is more of a Hitchcockian, (laughs) like a British thriller. Jim, your answer to the question. I think Cat from Outer Space, it seems a little like, yeah, I haven't seen. I was thinking about those other movies too, like Escape from Witch Mountain and all that. And it seems like there was a lot more going on than I remembered. And the plot, like how many, like going back to the, not, it wasn't that complex, but it was just, there's a lot going on and it kept going. And I think it was definitely entertaining 
for a kid, you know, it's like a, as a kid's movie, it's definitely like a babysitting, I guess, you know, those, these movies are just like kind of surface level entertainment, but had no pretense, I guess, going back to that, like, whereas E.T. was like, definitely, I found overwrought. And like you said, it's definitely a, it's a real movie, even though it has definite faults and cracks and it delivers. It's very visceral. And Cat from Outer Space is like a cartoon. They're very different movies. I just enjoyed Cat from Outer Space, but I can't be objective, I guess. <laughs> I think if you put them on a scale, like if you put them on a scale, both films, it would be equally weighted. I think that like the <laughs> different they reasons each have yeah. positives and negatives. It's just to the point to where like, and, and I think you're yeah. kind of proving the point. Like I was trying to think about it. I'm like, they're very different in style. They're very similar in plot. And I think that they have the maybe an equal amount of strengths and weaknesses to mm-hmm. them. And I kind of had the same experience where like I enjoyed both films to a certain degree. And then I felt like they were a little long at some point. <laughs> but of course, notoriously, I think films are too long. <laughs> this film was traumatizing for my wife. In fact, we should have had her talk about it. My wife and Michael McLost were both severely traumatized by E.T., they were very scared of E.T. and were constantly afraid E.T. would come in the room and, you know, kill them. Wow. And in fact, my brother-in-law used to, uh, when he thought E.T. was in the house, he would call his mom from down the hall and say, Mom, and she would come from her room to his room and just say, is everything okay? He's like, yeah, it's okay. And he just did it. He used her as bait because if E.T. was there, he would have killed her. But the fact that she got to his room safely, he realized there's no alien in the house. Nice. My wife says the scene where they find E.T. in the sewer or in the ravine. The river with the, oh, yeah. with the uh, yeah. raccoons chewing the on raccoon him. raccoon is yeah. fucking with him. <laughs> That's hilarious. Yeah. That's the amazing. first time I laughed. I was like, yeah. I've never seen that raccoon fucking with him, man. And he's yeah. like eating his face. <laughs> But that and, scared my wife. He looks atrocious. Oh, yeah. He looks, you know, so sick and disgusting. Yeah, mm-hmm. you know, like a ashen white penis <laughs> laying in the water with a raccoon nibbling on it. Not yeah. to get too graphic. So, did they growing up? Did they have very large uh, closets? Like Elliot yeah. has the biggest closet in the world. They're all sitting in the closet. It's like as big yeah. as his room. Do I understand the way it's set up is uh, Drew Barrymore's rooms are connected by the closet. I I thought there was a different closet. Maybe they are. Okay. They both just have gigantic closets. Drew Barrymore is phenomenal in the film. There's some pretty funny part. Yeah. The the funny lines, you know, they obviously gave just like... Penis breath, of course. That's Elliot. Oh, she repeats it though, right? I think she repeats it. No. Oh. I totally thought that too. I was like, that's one other thing I remember being traumatized, not traumatized, but oh, mortified. But it's Elliot who says that to his older oh. brother. I totally remembered it too. Like, it's like Drew Barrymore says that. It's like, that doesn't seem right. And why would Steven Spielberg? But when you watch, why not watch it again? It's like, that's not true at all. And I don't think she's even in on the set, probably. She wasn't, because the shot when he does, he stands up and yells, says that to his brother. She's not in the shot. It's him and his brother and his mom. She would be over to the side and she's, there's, the camera shot is just the three, three of them. So I bet she wasn't even there. There's a reaction shot of her smirk, you know, like smiling when he sits back down, but it's like, that's a different shot. And so I have a feeling she wasn't even there. Weird, because everybody, I think, remembers that it's like, she says that. It's a Mandela effect. That reminds me, I just heard an interview with Sarah Polly. She's an actress, but she was in Baron Munchausen. She's pretty, like, militant about, like, children should not be in movies. 
like actors. They should not be actors. Like talking about her experience being nearly drowned while filming Baron Munchausen, but just in general, she's just like, it's not, children should not be in this environment. She's great in um, Dawn of the Dead. She's also in Go. She's really good in Go. She's in uh, she's in uh, Existence, right? I think she's in yeah. Existence. Yeah. Yeah. She's yeah. like one of the agents, like she's, shooting. She's, you know, when they're like, yeah, <laughs> just yeah, like executing. She and she's in the uh, the what? What's this? The oh. is it? No such thing. I was like mm. that movie with the or is she in the one? I was thinking the of the one ogre. Where, oh yeah, that's right. Is she in the Sweet Hereafter? I believe so. Yeah, I she is in there. I think the problem is, is she's just been in a lot of really upsetting movies, <laughs> and she's right. Children should not be acting in these terrible, upsetting films, especially films about a whole school bus of children drowning in a lake. I think children in Hollywood, particularly in the era of filmmaking that we watched them in, like the John Hughes era, you, know, you hear a lot of very horrible things that went on with those kids, and how some of them didn't get out alive. Have you watched the Robert Downey documentary with, that he did? Or it's, what is it? I don't know, even know what it is. It's him and his dad, you know, talking him. Robert Downey did a documentary about his dad. They kind of talk about how messed up things were, but it almost feels like maybe not enough. But it's, it's just like, yeah, it's just like not a good environment. Definitely the 70s, right? It's not a good environment to be a child in Hollywood. I don't know. Jodie Foster on the set of Taxi Driver, probably a great <laughs> With her mother? Her mother was supervising, though. Her mother was always there. She had to meet with a psychiatrist or something they, yeah, they, yeah. before, and the psychiatrist was like, oh, she can handle this. <laughs> There's the Friedkin story about meeting... Um, Linda Blair. Linda Blair, yeah. And there, he's like, he asked her something about masturbation. Do you know what masturbation is? And she like describes it to him and i forget that there's some anecdote there that you're just like mm, i don't know man this all doesn't sound straight this isn't this isn't right all right well gentlemen on that note wow <laughs> that got really dark really fast you know i just want to give a shout out to mclean stevenson i live oh, yeah. in his hometown so mclean stevenson <laughs> shares a surname with Adelaide Stevenson. He was a member of the Stevenson family in the Bloomington Normal area. And then also, I believe, the McLean family, which is the name of the county. So he's he's one of the superstars from Bloomington Normal. McLean Stevenson went to the same grade school and high school my kids go to. Nice. Maybe your kids will grow up to... <laughs> to be on a hit TV show, then quit that show, and then be on a show... Hello, Larry. Hello, Larry. That was basically a punching bag for Johnny Carson and other comedians for a good three or four years. That's all I really remember about Hello, Larry. Is his... I thought his daughters were cute. I watched Hello, Larry <laughs> yeah. every week. I enjoyed it. I'd like to do a shout out for uh, a previous guest, Rose Rewound. She's got a book out called Play Like a Man. Everyone should go buy it, read it. She also has an album, a new re-release of one of the first LPs that her band released is out in double album format. What is that, Sticks 1 or 2? It's um, Paradise. It's called Paradise, Paradise Theater. Theater. The first disc is Paradise and the second disc is Theater. That was back when Ian Burgess and Steve Albini worked with Sticks. <laughs> so check that out. Maybe this is a bullshit story, but I thought you all recorded one of your legendary albums around the time that Styx was recording at the same time. Do I have that right? Yeah. So we were in the oldest studio. It was like a suite or a complex of studios. And so we were in the old studio 
which was the great studio, the 70s studio, the studio that like Love Roller Coaster had been recorded in. But by the 1980s, it was considered out of date. And so it could be rented by punk rock engineers and bands on the weekends to uh, make a record. But then the big new brand new studio Styx was in. And that yeah, there was the story about how the assistant engineer on our session came in and was describing what was going on in the stick session. And it was like, they've already got, they've got 24 microphones on the drums. You can't even see them anymore. <laughs> it was the thing. It was, it was astounding. Sort of peak studio production. So what you're saying is it runs in the family, right? So you're all, <laughs> you'd all kind of grown up and now you're big time recording artists all at the same time recording together. Just, just down the hall from one another. That's amazing. When you got together at like the reunion, did you all talk about the coincidence? <laughs> yeah, I don't think the Sticks guys know us. You could probably get them to open for you if you were to do a tour. <laughs> I'm a purist man. Sticks isn't Sticks without Dennis D. Young. <laughs> and oddly enough, to, to kind of loop this all around, is I once, actually it was walking down the street after a large outdoor show in Champaign. Urbana, Illinois, was so actually Steve Albini was there and uh, Rick Digit sang a pitch perfect rendition of Come Sail Away as we were walking down the street. He has a very, very good voice on the level of Dennis DeYoung. Rick was busking or? No, it was after, after an outdoor show and we were all kind of walking after the show and we're kind of in a clump of people and Rick Digit really showed off his pipes. It was amazing. <laughs> he, can, he can sing Come Sail Away or he could at that time. He, he could compete with Dennis DeYoung. Honestly, this is not a joke. I mean, I'm, I'm saying he's a very good singer. He is a great singer. He, you had said that there's some sort of theater in his background and you can tell yeah. he's, he's a master performer and also with a tremendous amount of integrity. I mean, I don't, I don't know how you put it, but he's like, he applied all of that skill to my favorite kind of music. Uh, had a dad, that song, that famous digits song. No, wait had a minute. Dad. Let's not do that again. Right. Listen to the vocals, the theatrically uh, wonderful vocals on Dad. Uh, now I can't remember. I think it's on Hey Judester. I can't remember if it's on Fizz Job. I mean, those albums are blurred together for me because they were on the it's same It's not scene. on Fizz Job, I don't think, but it's, it's hey yeah, Juicer. I need to go through my, my vinyl to, to look at. I'm going to do that after this. I, I got to look at my vinyl. All right. Well, this is it, guys. <laughs> Last episode that we have no more excuses. I can't believe it. I can't believe it's ending. So what's going on right now? There's a man with a cape and he's putting it, he's draping it over Chris's shoulders. And <laughs> Chris is kind of hunched over, exhausted, and he's being led off away from the microphone. <laughs> the U sixty seven. No, eighty seven. This is the sixty seven. And saying it's it's all over, folks. <laughs> Yeah, we'll see. We'll see what happens. Look, I've got terms. If we were to do another season of the show, I'd want to do another full season. I'd want us each to pick four movies, and I'd want us to reconvene in your mother's home, and I'd want to be eating Lito's pizza while we watch the movie. I want to go back to the format that so few people listen to. The pre-COVID <laughs> format, right? Pre-vegan Rick Rewound. We can get you a <laughs> vegan Lito's pizza. There is... They just don't put cheese on it. Just don't put cheese on it. Just wherever there's right. cheese, put pepperoni and <laughs> Oh, wait, that doesn't work either. Vegan, that means you're lactose intolerant? You can eat fish, right? We'll let the listeners decide. If I've gotten absolutely zero emails from listeners. Our email address is lostfoundrewound at lotuspool.com. If you want us to do a second season... I'll have to cajole Rick into driving up to. Oh, oh sorry, up to. Jeez. I'll have to cajole wow. Rick 
into driving up to his mother's home once a month or once every two weeks. Because for you, it's just a hop, skip, and a jump there, right? I'm the one who has to travel a long distance. Yeah. I mean, for me, it's it's all business. <laughs> Chicago business. Somebody's got to collect those checks from Lido's. Those checks aren't going to collect themselves. Lost and Found and Rewound is fully funded by Lost and Found and Rewound Foundation Funds. Lost and Found and Rewound does not use crowdfunding because our listeners have better things to do with their funding. There's no need to post reviews of Lost and Found and Rewound because our listeners have more valuable things to do with their time. In all sincerity, thank you for listening to the show. We truly appreciate it. Lotus Pod.